We return once again to our verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in chapter 13. We will look at verses 4 through 7 over the next couple of Sundays. This will be part one of a discourse that I would entitle, The Virtues of Love. I want to read to you verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. Follow along. Very familiar passage. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, and does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Having been in pastoral ministry for now over 35 years, I can say without hesitation that the four greatest problems that we see in the church today are number one, a proliferation of tares amongst the wheat that is producing a Christless church. Secondly, there is a disdain for accurate Bible doctrine which is producing an undiscerning church. Thirdly, there is a disregard for personal holiness producing a worldly church. And then finally, there's a lack of Christian love producing a powerless church. It's no wonder these four evils receive such great attention in the New Testament. They plague every church. They certainly plagued the early church. But today we are going to focus our attention on the last one that I mentioned, this issue of Christian love. And of course, that's the theme of 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, as we've learned before, agape love is compassionate acts of self-sacrifice. It's unconditional love. It's love that is unmerited. Agape love is self-sacrificing and affectionate an affectionate disposition that seeks the good of others regardless of merit and with no demand that they reciprocate. This agape love is is a spirit-empowered compassion that will seek the welfare of others, even the welfare of an enemy. This kind of love, dear friends, is the mark of genuine Christianity. It is the sine qua non of the Christian life and discipleship. Now, none of us have ever experienced this perfectly, except through Christ. Moreover, none of us have executed this perfectly, though we strive to do so by the power of the Spirit. For example, just try to insert your name in the passage that I've just read. Let me do so by inserting the first person, personal pronoun, I. I am patient. I am kind. I'm not jealous. I don't brag. I'm not arrogant. I don't act unbecomingly. I don't seek my own. I'm not provoked. I don't take into account a wrong suffered. I don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice with the truth I bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Kind of makes you sick, doesn't it, when you think of it that way? Folks, only Jesus can insert his name here. This is a description, frankly, of the lover of our soul. Moreover, chapter 13 is a a description of what the Apostle Paul tried so desperately to model in his life and his ministry The great Lutheran theologian, R.C.H. Linsky, captured this powerfully. He said, it is true, only a man in whose heart the Spirit of God has kindled a faith like Paul's could evidence a love like Paul's 
and on the basis of his own experience of that love, record its glories in what may be called the psalm of love. Paul's own heart lies open before us in this chapter. Here is the motive, power, faith, working through love that sent him over land and sea to preach to others the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here is the inner power that sustained him amid all his labors, burdens, trials, sufferings, persecutions. Here is what made him rise superior to hunger and hardship, false friends and bitter foes, bodily infirmity and dangers of death. We cannot understand this man, save we understand his faith and its fruit of Christian love. And I have the rest of that quote, I believe, in your bulletin this morning. Beloved, the distinctive mark of authentic Christianity is a love that's unlike anything this world experiences or even conceives. Because once again, this is a spirit-empowered love that manifests itself in compassionate acts of self-sacrifice. And this is a love that flows from the infinite reservoir reservoir of, of God's love for us. <clears throat> it is a love that cannot be faked. It is a love that cannot be manufactured. It's a love that cannot be sustained by the power of the flesh. It can only operate by the power of the indwelling spirit of God. And only when we walk faithfully and intimately with him. And because we are in Christ, frankly, this love is an overflow of, of God's love for us. A love that has been implanted in us through faith in Christ. Whose death on the cross is the supreme example of this love. And our enjoyment of this love is so transcendent, so satisfying to the soul. That it animates our love for God and others. So this is a love that is therefore motivated out of a heart of humility. It's regulated by a heart of faith. And it is sustained by a heart of hope. The confident assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God. A love that will be ours forever. This kind of love, however, will shine most brightly in the darkness of the world, even more brightly than in the fellowship of God's people. I had a conversation this last week with one of our dear young ladies who's in her first year at a, at a state university, and she was talking about just the godless people that she's around, the, the vulgar language, the, the, the blatant immorality, Habitual fornicators, you know, the LGBTQ, XYZ, whatever it is, you know, activists that are on campus. And we commented on how different that world is than the Calvary Bible Church bubble that we have, right? We all know that. And by the way, thank God for the Calvary Bible Church bubble. I mean, we need that. A little taste of heaven. A number of you military guys describe the same thing. Being around those people that are ungodly, that are lost. Business people, you describe the escalating hatred for Christianity. And yet I might say that it's in the darkness of the world that agape love shines the most brilliantly. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. Christ loved us and he gave himself for us, and on and on it goes. But dear Christian, if we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will never be able to love the lost as we should. And this was the problem Paul is addressing in Corinth. Remember now, this was a church that was marked by jealousy and strife, selfishness. People were dissatisfied with their gifts so some of them felt like they had been shortchanged by God. And they wanted to have the showy gifts like some of the others had. So they would manufacture gifts, especially the gift of tongues. And of course, all of this is rooted in the absence of love. 
And these problems will face every church, our church included. In fact, Christian love is what preserves unity in a church. It's what empowers its ministries. It's what animates its, its worship and anchors the perse- persevering hope that we have in Christ. So in order to show them a, quote, more excellent way than the earnest desiring they had for the greater gifts, as Paul said at the end of chapter 12, he describes, first of all, the value of love, and that's what we looked at last week. And he did this by exposing just the utter worthlessness of Christian service or self-sacrifice apart from love. And now he moves from verses 1 to 3 to verses 4 through 7. And here he talks about the virtues of love. Now, I want you to understand, here he's, he's painting a beautiful picture of what love does and does not do. Not merely what love is, but how love behaves, how it manifests itself. Love is not merely what we feel, but it's what we do. That's how it is measured. And this can be obscured in our English translation of this text, where basically you see adjectives describing love as if to express the qualities of love. And if you're not careful, this can lead to kind of a a passive reflection rather than active behaviors. But what we see in the original language, in the Greek, Paul uses 15 verbs in the Greek text to describe the active characteristics of love. For example, love just doesn't feel patient. It practices patience. Love does not simply feel kindness towards others. It performs acts of kindness towards others and so forth. So let's humbly examine this passage more closely with with a prayerful desire that the Spirit of God just expose our own difficulties here. Believe me, I've had at least all week to endure this. Now it's your turn, right? And it brought conviction to my heart. I don't love perfectly. None of us do. But the Spirit of God is so gracious, and we celebrate His grace even in our weakness and love. First of all, notice what he says, love is patient. This comes from a Greek verb that means long-tempered, macrothemia. It's interesting. It's the opposite of being short-tempered or, as we would say, having a short fuse. We all understand that. It's really a compound word. Makros means long in time in Greek. And thumos uh, may denote uh, passion or even wrath. And so it denotes this idea of, of, of love that endures. It is even-tempered. It waits patiently on God when people act wickedly. It carries the idea of of waiting on God in the midst of some kind of perhaps an offense for the right opportunity to respond appropriately as Christ would respond. Sometimes that might include a confrontation or a rebuke. So this kind of patience is is compels by this love to, to hold your tongue, if we can put it that way, and wait on God. Patience is that which causes you to remain calm and collected when somebody cuts you off on the interstate. Oh boy, now you get the idea, right? Patience has no thought of asserting rights, or getting even, or harboring resentment. And thus the older English versions, like the King James says, that charity suffereth long. I remember I memorized a lot of these things when I was a kid in the King James. I had no idea what a lot of it said, like suffereth long. I had no idea what that meant. Charity suffereth long. Um, Aren't you you thankful for modern translations that help us understand these things? But this term is also used in the New Testament most exclusively to describe what it means to be patient with other people more so than being patient with circumstances. John Chrysostom, the 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, who was also an early uh, church father, very important 
church father. He defined patience this way, and I like this. He said, quote, It is a word which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. Well stated. Now, this was considered a weakness in the Greco-Roman world in which this was first written. Especially for the Greeks, boy, it was a virtue to retaliate at the slightest offense. And, of course, that's the spirit of our age today, right? Everybody's offended with everything in this politically correct world that we have. In his great work, Charity and Its Fruits, Jonathan Edwards once said, quote, In him that exercises the Christian spirit as he ought, referring to patience, there will not be a passionate, rash, or hasty expression or bitter, exasperated countenance or an air of violence in talk or behavior, but on the contrary, the countenance and words and demeanor will manifest the savor of peaceableness and calmness and gentleness, end quote. In the Old Testament, we read about God is long-suffering. In, in the Hebrew, it, it literally means long of nostrils. Rather an interesting thought. Uh, it was a Hebrew idiom that expressed the idea that, that, that God's nostrils are slow to become red and flare in rage. Gives you the idea. Slow to reflect anger. Again, the opposite of a short fuse. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, of course, God himself is our supreme example of this Christian virtue. And down through the centuries, God has been so Patient to withhold his just judgment despite the persistent rebellion of mankind against him. I mean, folks, just think of the moral freefall that we're in right now in our country. It's incomprehensible, and it's around the world. I was reading, for example, um, the other day that in the U.K., quote, transgender women, which is really nothing more than men who dress up like women, are being urged to get tested for cervical cancer. Obviously, the, the article says that is biologically impossible. Of course it is. But in order to be politically correct and pander their delusion, they're suggesting that they go do this as well. I mean, folks, this is Romans 1 on steroids, isn't it? I mean, it's the wrath of divine abandonment where God gives people over to a worthless mind. Also in the UK, transgenders are also seeking to have not only female-like sex organs plastically constructed, but also to have actual wombs of deceased women implanted in them so they can, quote, experience pregnancy. You know, often I ask myself, Lord, this is insane. How much longer are you going to Tolerate this kind of evil to flourish. And then I'm reminded of his loving patience. Remember in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I mean, folks, think about it. If God, who is most holy and therefore most offended, can remain patient, why can't we, who are least holy and the least offended, be patient as well? But think how impatient we are towards other people. Yes, but pastor, I've been sinned against. This person has disappointed me. This person has not met my expectations. This person has ignored me. This person has maligned me. This person has offended me in so many ways. Well, yes, that may be true. 
But are we not guilty of doing the same thing to others? Aren't you glad the Lord is patient with you? Paul said of himself that he was a servant of God, 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 4. And he, he said, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. And in 1 Peter 3, Beginning at verse 8, Peter said for us all to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessed blessing instead. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Paul said, be patient with everyone. Beloved, this is how agape love operates. Patience is, is that spirit-empowered restraint of passion when frustrated or wronged by other people. It's the refusal to pay back evil for evil, Romans 12, verse 17. You see, folks, this kind of love does not retaliate when someone fails to meet your expectations or sins against you. Proverbs 19, verse 11, a man's discretion makes him, I like this, slow to anger. Then he goes on to say, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. See, that's the opposite of road rage, right? It's the opposite of temper tantrums. It's the opposite of the emotional meltdowns that sometimes we see. If I can use some of our southern vernacular, and I remember my mom saying this, it's the opposite of pitching a hissy fit. I'm not sure what a hissy fit is for sure, but I've got a pretty good idea. I think you do as well. It's the opposite of severing fellowship with another believer because something didn't go your way. Now, we've all been around impatient people, hotheads, people with short fuses, people who bully other people, and, and then when anybody pushes back, they, they, they throw, an, here's another word, a conniption fit, all right? I can tell you stories you would not believe of people even in this church who went absolutely medieval when they were confronted on an issue, even in great love and tenderness. Now, we all hate this in others, but isn't it easy to ignore it and excuse it in ourselves? Sometimes we're not explosive in the way we retaliate or whatever. Sometimes we just give up on difficult folks, or we just ignore them when they don't meet our expectations. Think of someone in the church right now that you really don't like. How do you treat them? With loving patience or with retaliation or dismissal, unforgiveness, severed friendship, don't want anything to do with them. Well, folks, this is what was happening in Corinth. Maybe it's happening in your life. So Paul says, love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. Now, patience and kindness are really two sides of the same coin of love. The term literally means warm-hearted, uh, gentle, considerate, um, carries the idea of being useful and, and serving, being gracious. It can be translated this way, love acts graciously towards others. It constantly performs deeds of kindness. It not only feels kindly towards other people, it acts kindly towards them. And of course, kindness is another one of the fruits of the Spirit. I find it interesting, if you think about it, patience is somewhat passive where we wait on God for the right opportunity to address 
a situation, but kindness is more of an active characteristic, a disposition that seeks to do good to others. Now, many of the Corinthians were unkind, as you recall from our study thus far, especially towards those who didn't share their preferences concerning their favorite leader. Remember, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and all that type of silly stuff. They were antagonistic towards those who were kind of outside of their clique. The wealthy wouldn't share their food with love at the love feast with with the poor. Uh, My goodness, they were suing each other over trivial matters. I mean, it's just insane when you think about it. How different that is from Jesus' admonition in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 40. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. By the way, don't you love being around people that are patient and that are kind? You're just drawn to them. There's a magnetism about them. And of course, the magnet gets turned the wrong way with people that aren't that way. Kind people, think about it. Kind people initiate interaction with other people. Kind people engage you with eye contact. Kind people ask about you rather than looking for an opportunity to talk about themselves in a conversation. Kind people look for ways to serve you. If I can even use another probably very practical illustration, kind people not only turn off their cell phone when they sit down with you for a cup of coffee, they leave it in the car. You get the idea? And folks, this begins with the family. It's kindness, this kind of love that knits a family together. I've counseled families who are impatient and unkind. And when there's conflict, the the remedy is always he who yells the loudest wins, you know, that type of thing. I just can't imagine that. We've just never had that. I've just never been around that, never experienced that in our family. And I know some of you can't say that but dad this dads this really begins with you husbands this begins with you how do you treat your wife with patience with kindness kids are watching or do you treat her as your personal slave dear cbc family let me ask you think about this think how this plays out practically in the life of the church are you patient and kind towards your brothers and sisters in christ this church family that you're going to share heaven with? Do you greet people with warmth? When you come to church, do you, do you find people that maybe you don't know and, and initiate conversations to see how you can care for them and pray for them? Is that your mindset? At fellowship meals, when you see a family that's sitting all alone, or maybe a new family, do you say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get to know these people? Sweetheart, come on, let's go, let's go get to know these people. Hi, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? Do you stick around after the fellowship meal is over and help clean up? Or do you gobble down that dessert that you got when you first came in to keep the kids from getting it? And then when nobody's looking, scamper on out. And let the four or five people that typically clean up every Sunday do the work. Because after all, you're too busy. You see how it works? I mean, folks, it's so little. It's so subtle. And it's just the little things that are important. Even the kind acts of, like, for example, when it's church cleanup day. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet you when we have church cleanup day, I bet there's not more than eight of you that ever come. I'm not trying to be unkind to you, but I just want you to see this is the mindset of love. Now, how do you expect your spiritual gifts to function effectively for the glory of God if you do not practice this kind of love? That's the point. Of course, again, God is our supreme example. Think of the patience Kindness he has shown you, Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, Paul asks? And forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 
And in Titus 3, beginning in verse 4, he says, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, I always allow my mind to go to the church that's being addressed. Remember now, this letter is being read, and here's the Corinthians, all these problems going on. Now, they've had to endure quite a bit so far, right? And now, all of a sudden, they're hearing all of this. I can only imagine that there's a lot of squirming going on by now. And hopefully, squirming will lead to conviction and confession And repentance. I mean, that's the goal here. But boy, Paul doesn't let up at all. He he adds next that love is not jealous. Oh my, he has thrown the cat in amongst the pigeons now. Because this was at the heart of a lot of the conflict there in the church. I can see the people now. Heads are looking down. People are scratching and checking their shoes. Some people have to go get a drink of water. Other people have to go to the outhouse. They didn't have bathrooms. But the point is, people are uncomfortable. Some of you may be feeling that way as well. Love is not jealous. Now, we must understand in the text, this is the first of eight negative descriptions that show what love is not. The term jealous in the original language, alo'o, means to have a strong desire. It means to, to be painfully desirous of another's advantages. It could be translated envy. They were jealous, you will recall, of those who had the showy gifts. And jealousy is also listed as one of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 3, Paul has already told them, You are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? In other words, like somebody that's not even saved? You see, folks, jealousy always produces strife. And whenever you see strife in a church, rest assured that somewhere at its root is pride and jealousy. It's always a major factor. And God will never bless a jealous believer because it quenches the spirit. It grieves the spirit. And those people won't last long in a fellowship. Their spiritual gifts will lack power and effectiveness, and their ministry will count for nothing. James 3, beginning in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, it's interesting. Jealousy will manifest itself in a couple of ways. One way is it basically says, I want what you have. But another way it will manifest itself is, I don't really want what you have, but I hate the fact that you have it, so I hope you will lose it. Let me give you some biblical examples. Satan used jealousy to tempt Eve in the garden. Appealing to her pride, she envied what God had and wanted to be like him. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel, so what did he do? Killed him. Joseph's brothers were so jealous of him that they sold him into slavery. Daniel's peers in Babylon were were so jealous of him that they devised a plan that would ultimately send him to a lion's den. Haman was jealous of Mordecai and tried to kill him as well as the entirety of the Jewish race. Saul was jealous of David, remember, and tried to kill him. The high priests and Sadducees, you read in the New Testament, were so filled with jealousy 
that they became apoplectic with rage and wanted to kill Jesus, and on and on it goes. But Paul was so different. Let me give you an example. In Philippians 1, we read how some of the young preachers that were coming up in that day, following along after Paul, were so envious of him, they wanted to surpass him in popularity and power, And writing from prison, Paul responds in love. And beginning in verse 15 of Philippians 1, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. My. Out of selfish ambition, he goes on to say, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? In other words, what what am I supposed to do? Retaliate? No, he says this, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. I'm going to let it go, let God deal with it. As long as they're preaching the truth, praise God. That's, That's patience, that's kindness. Beloved, this is a very destructive and divisive sin. Ask yourself, what is... What is my response when I have a friend who excels or, or succeeds in some area? What's my response when someone forms a relationship with someone that I wanted to have a relationship with? What happens when a friend gets the promotion that I think I deserve or is honored in some way that I believe I deserved or or someone is prettier or more popular or more intelligent or more educated or more successful, a better teacher, a better preacher, a better musician. What's my response? Do you rejoice in the successes and, 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 and their successes and praise them? Or do you resent them? Or do you secretly even disdain those who are better and more successful than you? rather than rejoicing in what God is doing in their life. Jealousy is always rooted in pride. In fact, jealousy is really the poison of love. It will cause you to believe the worst about others and seek their ruin. But love is just the opposite. Love will cause you to look for the best in others and see the worst in yourself and seek the best For them, rejoice with those who rejoice. In Proverbs 27, verse 4, we read, Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? Folks, jealousy will destroy your marriage. Jealousy will destroy your family. It will destroy your working environment. And it will rip a church to pieces. Love is not jealous. He goes on and he says, love does not brag. Boy, he doesn't let up, right? I mean, he's running up the score on him here, so to speak. Brag. Perperuomai in the original language. Interesting term. It it means to exhibit self-importance. And we've all seen this before. To talk conceitedly. The NIV translates it, Love does not boast. And I learned it this way as a child in the King James. Charity vaunteth not itself. Again, one of those, I had no idea what that meant, but I knew that I wasn't supposed to vaunteth myself. One of many reasons I don't preach out of the King James Version, but even though it's, I don't want to knock that completely. I hope you understand that. But folks, this is a person who has an inflated opinion of himself or herself and is always looking for a platform to get upon and and to find where the spotlight is showing so that they can run and, and take a bow and seek the applause. This is why Facebook and other social media sites are so successful because they provide a platform for self-promotion. Most people are passionately in love with themselves and desperate for affirmation. And of course, the braggart tries to make people jealous through their conceited talk. 
And he or she, for example, will turn every conversation into something about themselves. This person will be the hero of all of their stories. They love to impress and flaunt their reputation. They love to boast of their accomplishments. They love to parade their wealth or their successes in front of others. They want to parade their sculpted bodies or their sexy bodies or their tattoos or their kids or whatever. This is the woman in the Bible study with all the answers that dominates all the conversations with stories about herself and her family. This is the man that's the champion of the Sunday school class that challenges every statement and dominates every discussion. I went, just went through my mind here. I remember when I was a kid, we used to get Sunday school pins. Anybody remember that? Few people. You, you'd get the pin, and then every year of, I guess, the perfect attendance, you'd get to tack on, and boy, I was proud of that. You know, I, I had one that was about this long. I remember at Moody Bible Institute during Founders Week, there was an old man there that had one that was about a foot long. And boy, he, he would walk along, and you'd see this thing dangling around. Whoa, look at that. I'm not suggesting his motive was poor, but you get the idea. Love does not brag. Now, the church at Corinth was filled with spiritual show-offs. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, he says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. The idea is everybody's trying to show off. Chaos. Beloved, we all have to guard against this. He goes on and he says that love is not arrogant. It means it's not proud. The term carries the idea of being puffed up with a bellows. King James says it is not puffed up. Now, no one likes an arrogant windbag. No one likes a strutting peacock. Proverbs 8 and verse 13, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth, God says, I hate. Chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Chapter 13, verse 10, through presumption comes nothing but strife. In chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Remember years ago, I worked in the Christian music industry as a kind of a resident theologian and, and counselor and whatnot. I worked with a, a lot of the music label executives, a lot of the artists, and a lot of the, the, the A&R directors and so forth. And I have to tell you, folks, many of those artists were, were vain, demanding, temperamental, spoiled, rotten prima donnas. And yet everybody's wanting their autograph. Everybody's kind of worshiping them, wanting their picture made with them. And, of course, you have things like the Dove Awards that just fuel all this fire. Imagine having a missionary award or a biblical counselor award. Or a pastor award show. You know, Nancy and I come pulling up in the limo, <laughs> red carpet. Nancy gets out with her $2,000 gown and the paparazzi's going nuts. And we walk in to receive. Isn't it sickening, folks? And this is what happens in the church. I mean, we laugh and rightfully so, but I hope I'm getting my point across. This is just so wrong. I made the mistake, I made a lot of mistakes as a pastor, but early on I made this mistake of inviting a very, a very popular radio personality and best-selling author to come to an event that we had. And after the invitation was made, his agent called and let me know that he has to fly first class. He has to have five-star hotel, five-star restaurants. And he sent me this long list, like a menu, of all the things that we had to have behind stage, all of the different types of fruits and different types of special water and all this type of stuff. And needless to say, all of that didn't go very well. I mean, folks, do you really think that kind of a person is filled with agape love? 
I think of Jesus who said, foxes have dens and birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 10, We apostles are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ, being sarcastic. He says, We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. He went on to say in verse 18, Now some of you have become arrogant. And I think of Jesus in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, I want to close this morning with two contrasting illustrations to show you the difference between some of the polity, some of the positive qualities of love that exist in some and some of the negative qualities that can also manifest themselves. And also, just to give you an illustration of how Suddenly, this has infected the church and robbed us of so much of its power, robbed us of the Spirit's ability to really do all that he would want to do in our lives. This came from a blog. It was entitled, A Tale of Two Teachers. It was posted by Amber Lee. And here's what she said. This is a rather long quote, but I thought I would give this to you because it covers this so well. A while ago, I went to a women's conference in another state with some of my relatives. We heard two different Bible teachers speak. Both of these women had written books. Both were well known. That is where the similarities ended. One woman was older. In fact, she was in her 80s. She spoke first. She shared her heart for us younger women. She shared from the word. She spoke of women to whom she had ministered in countries where believers are being persecuted. Her voice broke as she spoke of her sisters in Christ, living under the constant threat of imprisonment and death. You could see the love she carried for them. She spoke of Christ and the gospel. Her knowledge of the word was so evident, and her talk was so full of scripture that she just seemed to breathe it out. I left her session with a heart yearning for Christ. I left with a clear picture of what I want to look like if the Lord should give me the gift of old age. Decades of walking with Jesus had made her one of the most wise and gentle-spirited women I have ever seen. The next speaker was a young woman. She stood up and immediately launched into funny stories about herself. She talked about trips she had taken. She dropped names of famous people she'd shared a stage with. She told more stories about herself. And at one point, she decided to work in a little bit of the Bible. So she wedged in a story about Noah and the ark and how, quote, how it must have felt as he saw everything he had floating by. There goes the house. There goes the tabernacle, end quote. She let that hang in the air as if giving it time to really make an impact. And I sat there in my seat wondering how the tabernacle could have been floating by when it wouldn't be built for over a thousand years after the flood. I tried to hang in there and give her the benefit of the doubt, but I gave up after the lunch session. After her talk, a couple of us had tickets to go to a more personal luncheon with her and sit in on her Q&A. And during that session, we got to hear even more about all the famous people she knows. She shared about different shows that she has been on or will be featured on. She told us that often women come up to her and say, I loved your book, to which she replies, girl, which one? I've written 11. I so deeply wish that I was making this up. It got harder and harder for me to swallow the food I was picking at on my plate the longer she spoke. The final straw was when she told us that she wanted to have her own network someday and be bigger than Oprah. As we left that event, there were two tables set up. The older woman was at one table waiting to talk and pray with the women as they came out of their sessions. 
The younger woman was at a table loaded down with her books, signing autographs and taking selfies with women who had purchased a book. She was standing in front of a giant banner with a blown-up picture of her own face on it. Here's the part that grieved me the most. The line at her table was three or four people wide and out the door onto the sidewalk outside. There was no line at the older woman's table. As I took in that scene, I had the thought that this is the problem. This is why we as women in the church are living on starvation rations of the word. This is why we are spiritually weak and we cannot discern when a pretty face is lying to us while holding a Bible. It is because we love the wrong things, end quote. Dear Christian, authentic Christian love begins with a breathless adoration for the lover of our soul, for God who gave us the gift of his son, and for his son who took our sins and gave us his righteousness, an adoration for the spirit of God that, that gave us his word and breathed life into us. And without this, without this kind of adoration, without this kind of passion, without going habitually to the cross and gazing upon Jesus, without this, we will love the wrong things. We will especially love ourselves and our lives and our ministries will count for nothing. May God have mercy on us all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the eternal truths of your word that bring conviction to all of our hearts. Lord, even in the illustration that we've read, we can see ourselves. And I pray that you will help us to change, melt our hearts, with conviction, with confession, and help us to walk in new directions that we might manifest the love of Christ in all that we say and do. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.